Well, good morning, Rocky. Happy Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, Yeah, after going through so much of Hebrews, it's kind of crazy to be out of that book. And today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to pause in Hebrews for two Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday. And this is the week, as we've been learning, where traditionally and historically, Christians celebrate and consider and ponder the days and the hours leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So this is a time of celebration. And so we thought it'd be fitting just to kind of take a break, pause on Hebrews, and, um, and we'll get, to be- get back to that in a couple weeks. And all four gospel writers include this account in their, in their gospels. And we refer to this, this story as the triumphal entry. It's well known. It's in all four gospels, so it's important. And I'm looking forward to digging into this with you this morning. And honestly, just this last couple of days, reading over this text over and over, I've just been struck again by the wonder of the incarnation and King Jesus and his humility, his lowly stature, how he took the path of a servant time and time again. And I've just been shocked by this. So it's going to be good. And from our text this morning in Matthew, it would just, it seems unthinkable that in only a week, a week from this time, this very city who welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem with shouts of praise, of glory to God, this very city would turn, turn on Jesus. Those same people who were waving palm branches, welcoming him, surrounding him, would turn on him, would betray him, would make him suffer a criminal's death on a Roman cross. It's amazing. And this morning, we're really faced with two visions of victory, from what I see. Two visions of victory, two ideals of success, two expectations of triumph. One is the path of God and the other man. One leads to temporal, superficial gain and the other eternal life. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be learning about the triumph of our Savior, of our King, Jesus, through his humility. And as you're kind of just getting comfortable in your seats, I want to reflect a little bit on the context. Because again, we've been in Hebrews. So we're in Matthew now. We're in the life of Christ. And this is a bit of context. At this point in Jesus' public ministry, he is well known. He's well known. He's performed great miracles. He's been the, really the discussion of all the Jewish leaders. And there's been controversy about him and his claims of being their Messiah. Word has even reached King Herod at this point about this Jesus person who appears to be something like John the Baptist or maybe a a prophet. If you remember, Herod had John the Baptist executed. And so rumors are spreading. Is this John? Or is this just a prophet like him? People are confused. And now after three years of ministering to people and surrounding himself with a core group of disciples, Jesus, his mission on earth is drawing to a close. Jesus is nearing his destination. That's the city of Jerusalem. And if you think about it, ever since he was a boy, a young man, he's been visiting Jerusalem, right? To go up there and experience celebration during the annual Passover feast. And yet this time it's different. It's very different. In Luke 9:51, we read, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is to be crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Do you feel the tension? Everything in Jesus' life has led up to this moment. And he knows exactly what he must do. And so he goes. And we know from Luke 9.52 
that Jesus, he actually sent messengers ahead of him in, in advance to go into Samaritan villages and to make preparations for his arrival. And so you can imagine that word got out. Jesus is coming. He's coming to our city. Word started to spread, and people were excited. People were excited. Now, some opposed Jesus, especially the religious leaders of the day and others, but many people loved Jesus. They loved him, and they thought that he was the answer to the oppression and the suffering and the hardship that they experienced under the the thumb of Roman rule, of that empire. And they thought, man, if this Jesus is indeed our Messiah, maybe maybe he's going to fulfill all of God's promises, and he's going to bring about a Jewish Davidic restoration, a kingdom like the old golden days. That was their hope. But far from the political, military victory that these Jews hoped for, that Jesus would come to take down the Romans, restore a Davidic kingdom, far from that, a different path to triumph awaited Jesus in Jerusalem, a far different path. And this was God's plan. This was God's path for his Messiah, for his deliverer, and it didn't look like that. But it was a path to sure victory. This path was counterintuitive to everything that men expect, and it came at a great cost, though. This path was marked by submission, by humility, by servitude, and by ultimate sacrifice. From the moment of Jesus' entrance into the world, this was his story. This final week of Jesus' life that we're considering, that we're reflecting on, it would be the ultimate example of this, of triumph through humility. So, this was the Christ's path. And I want us to first consider that path in our text this morning. This is the path that God prepared for his son. And this is the path that he expects us to follow. This is the intended path of the Christian so let's read, let's read again. First three verses here. Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So, our text tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem, of that city. And they're at the Mount of Olives. They're only about three kilometers away from the city gates. So that's basically the same distance from our church here, Rocky Bay Baptist, to Niceville High School. So it's not very far. It's close. It's a stone throw away, one-minute car drive. And they're on the outskirts of the city. And there Jesus, he sends his disciples off to do a little mission. They were to go to a nearby hamlet. They were to find a donkey and a colt. And they were to bring him back to Jesus. For the last leg of their trip, this entry into Jerusalem, Jesus intended to, to ride on a donkey's colt. But as I was reading this, you know, the question hit me, well, why? Why this way? Why this avenue of travel? Why this mode of transportation? After all, you think Jesus could have entered Jerusalem in any number of ways. So why this way? Was it just because he was tired? That he just wanted to get up above the, the, the dust of the road? Why this, this way? Well, Matthew, he tells us. He explicitly explains it. Verse 4. This took place, Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. These words, quoted by Matthew, they came from the prophecy of Zechariah, as Chris told us. This was some 500 years before. In Zechariah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he foretold the coming of Israel's Messiah, of Israel's king. This was God's plan to send his royal, powerful, righteous ruler back to the Israelites, to the daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem, on the back of a young donkey. This was God's plan. And Matthew tells us this is why Jesus commanded them to do this. This is the answer. So Jesus intended to fulfill this specific prophecy. He intended to fulfill this in the sight of his disciples and all the people of Jerusalem to demonstrate to them that his arrival as Messiah, it was legitimate. It was God-ordained. The rumors were true. He was coming, and he was their anticipated king. So this final week of Jesus' life, it would be marked by submission to the will and the plan of God in accordance with the scriptures, down to the finest detail. This is humility. He wasn't just making this stuff up on, on his own. It wasn't last minute. He intentionally submitted his will to the plan of the Father. And that was the plan that he had prepared for him. And this is how Jesus, if you think about it, had been operating his whole life. You read through the Gospels. Jesus will say, hey, this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? And oftentimes the disciples didn't under, understand this until the aftermath, after the resurrection, when their minds were opened and they realized all these things he's been doing were in fulfillment of these scriptures. But this is how Jesus had been operating. So the prophet Zechariah, he saw a day when a king, unlike any other, would ride into God's city in humility, in low stature. He didn't come to exalt himself but his father and to make peace with men. As a servant, this Messiah was coming to lay down his own life. So instead of taking things into his, into his own hands and just doing whatever he wants, Jesus, he was willing to enter this final week of his life fully reliant, independent on his father, on his plan. And so regardless if the disciples at this moment understood what Jesus was doing, he commanded them to ready his mode of transportation, the colt of a donkey. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. So the disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Now, for Matthew, it's kind of confusing. It's like, wait, is Jesus sitting on both? Was he straddling, you know, the donkey and the colt? But from some of the other gospel accounts, it makes it, it, makes it clear that well, he's actually sitting on the colt. So why they had the two, we're not sure. Maybe, maybe the donkey was to, was to keep the colt, you know, from freaking out so that they could both walk together. We're not sure. But wow, this is the ultimate example of humility. But here's the thing. We all know that first impressions matter, Right? First impressions matter. That's why when you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth. It's one of the first things you do. You comb your hair, right? You try to look presentable. And, and then you go on your way because first impressions matter to us. It matters to people. And his disciples probably understood that. So if you were Jesus' PR guy, his public relations person, how would you want Jesus to enter Jerusalem? How would you want your king to be portrayed to the people? How would you want to best represent him? Now, for us, we like to go to petting zoos, and I don't know, we might think, hey, riding on a donkey sounds kind of cool, right? But in the ancient world, 
Donkeys were burden bearers. They were simple animals. They were used as multi-purpose work animals. They were not meant or designed or expected to bear royalty. So Jesus was flipping the paradigm on its head. This was not the people of Jerusalem's expectation of a king. But this was God's ordained and prophesied plan. And it blows my mind. Here comes your king! Can you envision it? Jesus was making a statement. A statement about who he was as king and the way that he intended to rule and reign. And he didn't come on a war horse. You know, it wasn't like, if you've seen the, 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 the Disney movie Aladdin, right, where Aladdin disguises as Prince Ali. He makes his grand entrance into the kingdom. And he's riding on like a, uh, an elephant, right? And he's surrounded by an army and dancing girls in a show. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. No, Jesus, he didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse, surrounded by an army and a show. His was a humble entrance. It wasn't first class. And I think if we can just, if we can just put it in our heads today, it'd be like a hype official or a president or Queen Elizabeth II rolling in today on like an old beat-up truck, pickup truck. No AC, no chauffeur, no bulletproof glass, right? I mean, that would make headlines. That would, that would be a statement. Royalty, don't do that. And friends, you know, this is why it's troubling. It is troubling, to say the least, when celebrity, celebrity pastors, they take their, their private jets, multi-million dollar private jets, and they fly overseas. They go into developing countries to do ministry, what kind of statement do they make about what it means to represent and be a follower of this king? Their entry undermines the message. And, you know, just put the heat on us for a minute. How about us, guys? How about us? As subjects of King Jesus, how do we introduce ourselves? Rocky. What are people's first impressions of you and me and our kids when they first meet us? What do people see? when they look at our church, on any given Sunday morning, what do people see when they walk in to join us in worship? This extends far beyond just the material wealth and status, though. You can rip on that all day. But this is primarily a mindset. It is a heart attitude. It extends far beyond that. Are we approachable and lowly? Are we willing to stoop and get our hands dirty? Are we willing to be servants and commoners in God's kingdom? The next time you or I, and I'm saying this to myself, are tempted to think, you know, that's not good enough for me. I deserve better. We should stop and reconsider. Look at this king. Perhaps some of us, and I'm including myself here, need to get off our high horses and <laughs> join our king on a donkey. There's talk this, this year about getting serious. I've heard this. I think it's great. About getting serious about evangelism this year. Of kind of rebooting our evangelism team and focusing on outreach into our community, if we're serious about that, then we need to apply this principle of humility in all our strategies. So, bottom line, our first impression matters. Christian, don't undermine the message by your entry. You represent this king. This king that Zechariah foretold this lowly king. You represent him. And this is what living under his rule and reign looks like. It involves not taking the lower position, 
the, the lowest position for the highest cause. If King, if our King Jesus lay down his rights and his status, and he sought triumph according to God's plan through humility, how much more should we, should you and I as his ambassadors? It's a no-brainer. So, so in our text, Matthew, he kind of transitions. He now draws attention from Jesus and his disciples in his lowly entrance to the crowd in Jerusalem in their reaction to Jesus' entry. We've just considered God's plan for his Messiah, right? The path that Christ was willing to take, which is triumph through humility. Victory through humility. So as we read this, as we read the crowd's reaction, I want us to ask, what was, what was their heart? What was going on in their minds? By and large, was their celebration aligned with God's idea of triumph? The path of victory that he intended and prepared for Jesus? And we'll read this, but I'll, I'll tell you up front, no, it wasn't. It was not. The crowd's expectation of, of triumph in a victory it came through power. It came through might. So let's keep reading. Verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were all shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Quite an interest, right? Everybody was a buzz. But what were they doing? They were spreading their own clothes. They're ripping off their their shirts. They're laying them on the mud for this king to walk on. They're making palm branches. Well, they're taking branches in this text. And and John's gospel tells us they're palm branches, right? That's Palm Sunday. They're taking palm branches and they're laying them down. Some of them were waving them around. That was a symbol of, of kind of Jewish nationalism and victory. They surrounded him. What were they saying? Hosanna, which means salvation or save us. Hosanna in the highest. To who? To the son of David. So they acknowledged something along the lines of Jesus' royal you know, identity, his messianic identity. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is actually a direct quotation from Psalm 118, 25 through 26, which is a messianic psalm. It was celebrated and recognized as a messianic psalm, all about God's deliverer. It's about God's salvation and his victory. And it's about a stone that was rejected who becomes the cornerstone. So these people, they're almost reciting verbatim scripture and attributing the saving work of God to this man, Jesus. Now, from... An outsider's glance, you know, if, if I was there, this must have looked awesome. This looked great. Jesus, he was received with a warm welcome, like some long-lost hero. But, again, what was going on in their hearts? What was the motivation behind all this? If you just read Matthew, and that's why I'm thankful we have all the Gospels. It sheds light on different things. Now, Matthew doesn't really get to, to get to the heart of that, but in John's gospel, he does. In John's account of Jesus' triumphal entry, he tells us what was the heart of the crowd. What was their motivation? This is what he writes. John 12, 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they 
hurt, he had done this sign. Okay, it's starting to make sense, right? These people, they're abuzz because of Lazarus. This man had been dead days, and Jesus raised him to life. You bet they were excited. I mean, wouldn't you be running on the street too if you heard this man was coming? And if the other stories were true, if Jesus had indeed multiplied food, if he could heal diseases and cast out evil spirits, maybe he was the Messiah that they've been looking for. I'd be on the street too. So, bottom line, the crowds, they received Christ because they witnessed and they heard of his miracles, his miraculous signs. They received him because he matched their expectations about what a Messiah looked like. He fit the bill. He fit the bill. And now they wanted him to lead them as their king to triumph, to use his power and start a rebellion against Rome. Triumph through might. These people wanted to be saved. They wanted to be saved, but their idea of Hosanna, of salvation, it was superficial at best. Right? You can just hear them saying, I like the way you heal our diseases. I like the way you heal out demons. I like the way you satisfy my hungry belly and the way you tell us stories. I like that. I want you to be my king. I want more of that. Did Jesus care about their physical needs? Yes. Did he care about their social situation? Yeah. However, the kingdom, if you think about it, the kingdom Jesus had been proclaiming through his whole ministry, it was about repentance of sins. It was about faith. It was about being born again. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, was for the poor in spirit. It was for those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not not for those who were haughty or proud, boisterous, insiders of violence and rebellion. So the Romans weren't the problem. Their hearts were. They needed a savior who would free them from the bond of bondage of sin, of Satan, and death. Yet they were so blind, <laughs> so blind by their own desires and their own ideal of success and triumph that they missed this. They missed it. And so they planned to use this Jesus, whoever he was, be the Messiah or not, for their own agenda. This this was the heart of the crowd. In 2,000 years, though, you know, (laughs) we haven't really changed. People have not changed. Like these naive crowds who were attracted to Jesus for all the wrong reasons, with no understanding about his path to victory or what it meant to be his disciple. There's a lot of people like that running around today. And this is true even within the church. You know, there's some of us who give lip service to Christ. Christ, We say, Hosanna! That's my king! But in our hearts, we don't value him as Lord and Savior. Merely as a means to an end, right? Our path to the American dream, to success, to recognition, and freedom, to a better life free from hardship. Superficial gain. Some people say, man, I just, I just love celebrating and receiving gifts at Christmas. You know, I like decorating my home with calligraphy quotes of your words, Jesus, that I find from the Southern Living Store. It's awesome. I like the feeling when I get in my car and I crank up K-Love K- Radio. You know, that makes me feel really good. I love the identity I found, you know, in my local church, um, all my friends. Chick-fil-A is awesome, you know. 
I, I like this life, Jesus. I want you to be my king. I want more of this. Right? Our cultural Christianity, guys, in a lot of ways has distorted and given us a faulty picture of King Jesus and the life he intends for us. So we can rip on the Jews all we want, but we have the same problem here. So friends, do we recognize and receive Jesus for the king he is? Triumphant and almighty? Yes. I was talking with my brother Hudson about Hudson this the other day. Jesus was, he was, he was lowly, but he was bold. He was powerful. He spoke with authority. So don't confuse humility with, with to, be, to be timid and meek and weak. That's, this was not the humility of Jesus. Jesus was triumphant and almighty, yet he was also humble and lowly. Do we recognize Jesus as that king? Are we willing to follow after him, bound to God's will, taking the path of a servant, resisting the wisdom of this age for God's plan? Are we willing to stick with Christ to the end? Or are we just going to scatter the moment that persecution comes and deny him before men? We have to ask ourselves that. Where do we fall? How do we need to reshape our expectations this Easter week about what it means to serve this Messiah? What God's rescue plan is all about? To follow King Jesus, it's a daily decision to basically forsake the the way of this world. And as we've been learning in Hebrews for months, right? It's going to be an upstream battle all the way. Well, in the days following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it didn't take long. It didn't take long. All I had to do is spend a few minutes with Jesus, right? It didn't take long to realize that Jesus did not come to establish his kingdom by power, in might, in insurrection. His actions and teachings were not that of a zealot king bent on rebelling against the Romans. <laughs> One of the first things they asked him when he, got to, when he got to Jerusalem, right? His views on taxes. What did he say? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And give to God what's God. God's. They don't like that. You spend time with Jesus, you hear things like this. Love your enemies. If anyone should sue you, take your tunic, well, give them your cloak as well. If someone forces you to walk one mile, walk two. Right? Jesus, he challenged the self-righteousness of the religious teachers of his day. He went to God's temple and he drove out all those who were <laughs> making profit off that place, right? The salesmen and their wares. He challenged them. He, he pointed out that they had lost reverence and love for God. Their hearts were cold. So none of this was popular. None of this was popular. The response of the Jews, these crowds, it went from, in a few days, joy to disgust. This wasn't the Messiah they were hoping for. And in John's account of Jesus' triumphal entry, he ends it up with this. This is from the observing Pharisees. They said, look, the world has gone after him. In other words, this is crazy. There's nothing we can do. Look, everybody loves him. The whole world has gone after him. But while, you know, today the world has gone after Jesus, we're going to see in just one week that those very people, even his closest friends, they're going to leave him. They're going to betray him. They're going to leave him to die. They'd be tortured, naked, and alone. And even God the Father will forsake his son as he takes on our sin. So in the minds of the people of Jerusalem, if you get in their heads, 
regardless of the sign above that man's head who was crucified, which read, King of the Jews, that man hanging on the cross, that was not their Messiah. In their minds, there was no way, no way that God was securing their salvation through that. Through that. There's the cross. The path to triumph and victory couldn't end at a cross in their minds. But as we're going to see, and as we're going to celebrate, right, God proved them wrong three days later. So, friends, you know, and this is what I was struck at the last couple of days just reading this. We have so much to learn from this king. So much to learn. His path to triumph, it looks so different from the world. And I hope we will follow. But before we end, I have to ask the question, what if Jesus refused? What if he refused this path, triumph through humility? I want you to recall this moment. We're going to rewind a bit. You go back to Matthew 16. It's in your notes. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 25. There is this little incident. We read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. This is before he set his face to go to Jerusalem. But he told his disciples these things. And in verse 22, we continue to read. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. (laughs) So what if Jesus had relented? What if he had given in? What if he had turned back, gone the opposite direction? pulled a Jonah, right? Jesus could have said, you know, you're right, Peter. Maybe, you're, maybe you are right. After all, I'm the Messiah. Why should I have to face this? I'm the Son of God. I am the King. Maybe I should turn back. Maybe there's another way. When the world screams at you, this isn't what victory looks like. This is not it. That's not the path to triumph. Far be, far be humility, far be suffering, far be hardship, far be cross from you, what are you going to say? Jesus did not relent. In obedience to God's plan and will, he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a sweaty colt into throngs of sinners whose shouts of, Hosanna, would be crucify him just a week later. He went in there prepared to die for those very people and for you in the most humiliating and gruesome way imaginable. We can even think of. This is what triumph looks like. It comes at a cost. It comes through humility. And it is the path of our king and the path that he has marked out for all of, all of us who claim to be his, his followers. Let's pray.
dear God, when we just stop to consider your plan and the way that you achieve victory and triumph, even through the weak, foolish things of this world, that you would send your son to be a burden bearer, to be a servant, to be a slave, a king just hated by the world. When we consider all these things, we can't... We have to fall after you, and we have to give things up. Lord, forgive me for my moments when pride gives in, and I feel like I deserve the world, deserve things better than you had it. Lord, I pray that, um, that you'd work in our heart this week through, through texts like this as we consider your lowly kingship, that you'd work through us, that you'd change us, Lord. you give us new desires, desires to serve you better and be more aligned to your ideals, to your expectations, to your vision of what victory and success and triumph looks like in this life. Lord, when the world calls at us, far be it from you to suffer. Far be it from you to walk after this man, to participate in anything that that king on the cross experienced. Lord, give us the faith to, to reject that and to follow after Jesus. That's my prayer, and I just ask all this in, in your name. Amen.